0: It's time to get Ruthless. The training world is full of technical editing courses that don't teach the high-end creativity that viewers expect. Inside the Edit was created specifically to teach you every single creative skill you'll ever need to mesmerize your audience. Hello dear friends, welcome back to another episode of Once Upon a Timeline, the official podcast of Inside the Edit. I am your host as always, Paddy Bird, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy week to join me for this week's show. Yep, I couldn't resist it. (laughs) I wanted to talk about a very specific part of our craft this week. And I think I spent most of the last fortnight watching a ridiculous amount of martial arts movies. And so I had like ninjas and samurais and ronins and shoguns all swirling around in my consciousness. I hope you'll forgive me, but I've themed this week's show through those particular eyes. So what have we got coming up? on today's show well it's a creative discussion that I think you're going to find pretty intriguing I certainly do let's set the stage for this week's quest now there are so many areas in our craft where we need to be positive where we need to be nurturing and supportive but believe it or not there is a substantial part of our art form where we actually have to be as ruthless and unsentimental as a medieval martial arts warrior. And that is when we're subtracting on our timeline. With the often overwhelming nature of shooting ratios in today's filmmaking, if we don't integrate this particular attitude we will drown in raw footage. It's a fascinating part of our art form and needs to be discussed in detail, in my opinion. So I really, really hope you enjoy diving into it with me this week. First, let's catch up on all of the latest Inside the Edit news. You can now book your place on this month's bootcamp over at InsideTheEdit.com For a whole half day, we're going to take apart the magic of montage editing. This is an incredibly powerful area of our craft and make no mistake, if you don't master this particular skill, you are an incomplete editor. I'll tell you a bit more about what we're going to cover in the boot camp after this week's creative discussion. Come and join me for four hours of training on Saturday the 29th of May, for an in-depth study on montage editing which you will not find anywhere else. Now, this next thing is something I've been looking forward to for quite a while and I'm really excited to announce that we are going to be running our first ever summer school. If you want to go into complete creative overdrive and see your abilities shoot through the roof, then this is the place for you. The whole week is going to be absolutely stacked. We're going to be doing live cutting, creative masterclasses, sequence analysis, group feedback sessions, as well as private one-to-ones with me in order to assess your work. It's going to be absolutely epic. But because of the personal and very intimate nature of the course, We can only have a very small team of editors studying with us. And so it's going to be a closed group for filmmakers who love intensity, feedback and real creative depth. I'm really excited about this new course and I'll have more to share with you on this very soon. Okay, it's time for this week's creative discussion. I must apologise. If I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. (laughs) I remember reading this quote uh, many years ago and immediately seeing the philosophical connections to our art form. I can't take credit for writing it, and even after some in-depth research, it seems no one can. Everyone from Mark Twain to Voltaire to Cicero to Benjamin Franklin has been credited with writing it over the last 2,000 years. But whoever wrote it, it opens up an intriguing discussion about a very specific part of editing. And that's why I love it so much. Now, when discussing editing, the emphasis is so often on the larger and more obvious issues. You know, the macro view, if you will. Things like narrative, pacing and structure. All fascinating and incredibly necessary things to talk about if you want to master this complex art form of ours. But with a kind of detective-like observation, taking a magnifying glass and identifying and truly studying every single thought process an editor goes through in order to construct a beautiful film, it's actually astonishing how many different skills there are in this art form. You know, we all have our different philosophies and perceptions, but I've long believed that editing, you know, it isn't one art form. It's dozens of smaller art forms within one whole. And while skills like narrative and pacing and structure are all essential to success, we also have to have so many other abilities sharpened and ready to go whenever we edit. Unfortunately, very few of these are verbalised or comprehensively catalogued in books, online courses and most importantly, in film schools for the next generation of storytellers. There are huge gaps in what I consider the fundamental skills an editor needs outside of the obvious ones of how you cut shots together and make them look beautiful. And one that I want to talk about with you is the ruthless pragmatism Of subtraction. I remember my early days of editing, you know, I used to get really nervous and anxious whenever I walked into a new job. As a young freelancer who was constantly moving from project to project, edit suite to edit suite and edit facility to edit facility, I was obviously nervous about a great many things. Was this going to be the job that was too difficult for me? Would I get fired for incompetency? You know, all things like that, really natural concerns for any young editor. But a very consistent fear I had was around the amount of footage I was given and the deadline I had to complete the project. These two massive factors created a real sense of dread every time and really hung over my head like a noose at the gallows. I would juggle these two around in my mind until I'd exhausted myself with how to solve these seemingly intractable issues. Clients wanted it fast, cheap and high quality, no matter what the state of the raw footage was. And therein lies the problem. Like any fairly competent analytical person, I'd look for patterns and consistency in order to craft a a kind of repeatable workflow that could work on any type of project. The problem was was that no two jobs were ever the same. There was always a massive variable in the amount of footage, the style of the footage, and the quality of the footage. But like many editors, I've been lucky enough to work with some incredibly talented directors, producers, and cinematographers. But also, like many of my peers, I've also worked with some people who couldn't direct traffic, which is kind of a delicate situation to you know to be in if the amount of footage the shooting style of that footage and the quality of that footage is so variable then how am I going to train myself to respond and adapt as quickly as possible in every single situation so that I don't miss the deadline and ruin my reputation as a new freelance editor this same prolonged question occupied a very large percentage of my mind for quite some time at the start of my career. Now, I think it's worth mentioning what was going on in the industry around that time that kind of shaped my thinking. It was the late 90s, early noughties, Avid was everywhere, and the digital explosion was in full swing. We had digital tape formats like Digibeta, and a seemingly endless ability to shoot more and more. Of course, like any technological breakthrough, there were huge upsides to all of this. The quality and variation of shows went up because many of the shooting costs went down. We could shoot again and again and again, which was brilliant for the cutting room. But as is so often the case with us human beings, we we often ignore the downsides of any new technological breakthrough. I remember very early on in my career noticing the different methodologies between directors I had worked with. As a freelancer, you know, as I said, I was lucky enough to work with hundreds of directors and producers um, over the course of my career. And I remember roughly classifying them in those early days into two groups, older and younger. Or to put it more distinctively, those who'd come from film and those who were born with digital. Now, why does this matter? Well, what seemed to be more apparent to me was that the older directors and producers who'd come from the days of film where, you know, as soon as you started shooting, you were incurring huge monetary costs, they usually thought through what they wanted to shoot a lot more than the younger directors who were brought up on digital filmmaking. You know, it wasn't always the case, but in a large percentage of the time, the younger directors had a much more cavalier attitude towards shooting because with digital, there was this kind of appearance that there was much less cost and that we could just shoot and shoot and shoot. You know, this is when I first started hearing that joke, oh, you know, we'll fix it in post. You know, it was on T-shirts and hats and coffee mugs all over Soho, but Any pro editor can tell you that this actually has a hidden cost. Or to put it more accurately, the cost is transferred from the shoot to the edit suite, because the editor will have to spend much more time going through this enormous amount of footage to create the same film. And I thought that was a really interesting point. Now, two other factors were at play here around this time which kind of complete the historical picture of digital shooting and and television and editing and, you know, everything that we've kind of inherited today. Training for directors dropped to zero as the freelance world exploded and production companies refused to fund freelance training. You know, their thinking was, why should they if, if, you know, if these same directors would finish the job and then, go off and work for a rival production company and then they'd lose their investment. But this had a knock-on effect and it meant that sometimes the quality of content went down as directors tried to solve common shooting and directing issues that they didn't know how to answer by overshooting. The second factor at play was economic. Budgets dropped because of competition and advertising revenue. But production companies wanted the same profit margins, which meant that over a process of time, schedules got shorter and shorter to the point of breaking point. What they used to give us 12 weeks to do was then scheduled for 10. A year later, it was eight weeks, then seven, then six. But they still wanted the same high quality of output. And so all of these factors created a perfect storm within the post-industry around this time. The younger editors adapted, but a lot of the older editors who were used to working at that much slower pace unfortunately fell by the wayside. So this was the backdrop to which I found myself building my career. I remember thinking that I couldn't control the economic and structural forces at play within the industry any more than my edit assistant could. But I could control how I reacted to it. And one of the ways I could react to this ever-growing set of shooting ratios was to be absolutely ruthless when cutting down. Quite simply, I would have to accelerate my subtractive decision-making process. Shoot it full of steroids, if you will. So, how the hell was that going to happen? I remember asking myself. Well, Just like cutting a scene, I started to break down the factors at play and took a mirror to my own creative process, my own creative workflow. What were the barriers to faster subtraction? Why were they there? What psychological mechanisms uh, and bad habits had I constructed in my own process and did they need to be fine-tuned in any way? After this kind of lengthy process of creative introspection, I came up with some rather interesting conclusions and solutions. Firstly, I studied the way in which I sifted through raw footage and started building sequences from a purely psychological point of view. Now, I noticed that when I was cutting, I was shifting back and forth between a subjective and an objective perspective. I was building a timeline objectively You know, using all of the laws and visual grammar of the moving image medium that I would taught myself by watching great editors. But then when I had a rough cut together, I'd switch to a subjective point of view when I watched it back. This allowed me to feel emotional about the sequence. Whatever that emotion was, I was, you know, I was trying to create. Objectively building and subjectively watching and making notes in order to make it better, back and forth, back and forth, like a pendulum throughout the day, the week, the month, and the year. To be honest, I didn't even realize I was doing this and it came as a bit of a shock, but here was the thing. It actually felt quite difficult if I analyze myself, you know, switching back to the subjective and emotional side of my creative process and then deleting elements because I'd grown emotionally attached to them. The amount of times an exec producer looks at what we've spent hours laboring on and says, Oh, that's really beautiful. But cut it in half because we don't have time. <laughs> you know, it's like being punched in the face. And we have to smile back and, and nod and say, Sure, no problems. And I thought this was really interesting because I I kind of found that there was a sentimental attachment to content that often delayed me moving forward as quickly as the schedule required. And this was a really interesting internal insight. That deep psychological yearning that every filmmaker, every storyteller has to create something that is emotionally moving or funny or anxious, or whatever, you know, fill in the emotional gap. You know, that was a kind of self-hypnotic state that I'd have to learn to turn on and turn off much quicker if I wanted to survive and succeed in this art form. I couldn't look back, and my sentimentality and emotional attachment for whatever this content, or shot, or dialogue, or whatever it was, it needed to be a lot less You know, it, it couldn't spill over into the kind of journalistic construction that I'm doing in this next process. Now, my second realization was slightly more pragmatic. I needed to have a continuously moving target or continuously adjusted target, if you will, and deadline for when I had to get through a certain bunch of rushes. I kind of realized that pretty much straight away. I needed to subdivide my time in a pretty ruthless way and utilize every single minute properly when watching and discarding footage in the initial stages of any edit. Now, of course, the way you cut a 3-minute sequence in a, you know, a reality TV show is is very different than how you cut an extended beauty scene in a a drama documentary. Different genres and different jobs have vastly different creative workflows. But the common denominator is always those two big factors of how much footage do we have and when's the deadline. Now, here's an interesting secondary point that sprung up around the same time for me. From a training perspective, which I was constantly doing at the time, I was training myself again and again and again. You know, you never really feel the squeeze of this real-life situation until you're in it, until you have some kind of accountability attached to it. You know, it's really interesting from a psychological perspective to watch yourself perform, you know, those few percentage points higher in stressful situations. You know, when you've got real, real life but self-imposed deadlines, or as traders in the financial markets call it, Skin in the game. If there is something at stake, i.e. your reputation, the deadline, your career, next month's rent and food, because essentially that is what's at stake every single day for a freelancer, you tend to have an enormous incentive to hit the target every single time. Comfort and having a B plan is not always a good thing. And the concept of skin in the game is as old as civilization itself. You know, if you were an architect who designed and built bridges in ancient Rome, every time your latest construction was finished, the authorities forced you and your family to sleep underneath that bridge for several weeks to make sure there was nothing wrong with the way that you'd built it or if you'd cut corners on the materials. That is skin in the game. And guess what? Many of those bridges are still there 2,000 years later. So... Creating these self-imposed deadlines not only gave me skin in the game by tying it to my success or or rather not failing, but it also gave me contingency. Things are a lot easier if you break them up into little pieces. And I kind of noticed that the less I planned and compartmentalized my time and schedule, the more stressful I was. I think I've talked about this on a previous episode, but... I remember one of the first times I used this principle was on a reality TV show. I was on location just outside of London in a big mansion uh, with the contestants of a famous talent show. Every single Saturday night, one of the contestants would get voted off by the public and I was there on a Sunday morning to cut what we called the fallout show. There was an outside broadcast truck right outside my window as one of the rooms in the mansion had been commandeered for me to have my edit suite. But the really interesting thing about this job was that the schedule was utterly insane. I did the math and basically I had to cut several hours of footage down to a couple of two or three minute promo sequences in a very short amount of time before it was broadcast to millions of people from the OB truck outside my window. And so therefore, I compartmentalized. I got ruthless in my time management. I worked out that I didn't even actually have time to watch the raw footage in real time. Nowhere near. I didn't have a director or producer. And my only brief was from the production manager who said, make it cool. (laughs) You know, no ideas on music or duration or nothing. I was totally on my own with several hours of pretty bad footage um, shot the night before. And the people who had shot it were asleep because they'd just done the night shift. So I couldn't ask anyone anything. Now, I gave myself a certain amount of time to subtract the footage and pull out what I thought was cool. And this meant that I had to watch the footage at double The speed, 50 frames per second. And that's pretty difficult when you're doing dialogue. I had to develop the skill right then and there in having to attune my ears and eyes to footage at that speed and still pull out what was necessary. It was stressful. Yeah, of course it was. But because I'd had that self-imposed deadline, I knew that this was the reality of the situation and I could not make it any better. The knock-on effect of that was that my stress levels probably went down by about 50%. Now, I know this is an extreme example, but it definitely illustrates the point. The more stressful I was, my creativity suffered. And therefore, the less chance of getting rehired on the next job. That intricate chain of success, creativity, stress, achievement and panic, you know, like Domino theory, they all had a knock-on effect with each other. They were all interdependent. The key question was, which one did I want as a major part of my working life? Because if I let the world decide, I'd spend most of my career in an anxiety-ridden mess on the edit suite floor. So these two realizations that I thought through you know, needing to be quicker when switching back and forth between objective and subjective mental states, coupled with the self-imposed deadlines of raw footage cutdowns, they really started to pay dividends pretty quickly. But there was one missing piece of the puzzle. I had a psychological answer and I had an organizational answer. I was missing the third leg of the tripod. I needed a selective answer. Training myself to repeatedly not look back, to not have emotional attachments to footage or parts of edits and just subtract them was a great step forward. Clearly defining the pockets of time I had gave me a series of organizational targets that compartmentalized that subtractive workflow and gave me a continual orientation of where I was and how much time I had. Both excellent. But I also needed the ability to speed up how I decided what was good and what was bad. And it's here that, like so many other editors before and after me, I developed my very own personal kind of grading system for what I thought was good and what I should leave on the cutting room floor. I needed to find the best of the best and I needed to do it fast Indecision is death in many forms of editing, you know, we just don't have the hours to contemplate the meaning of some concept or structure in shorter form content like news or online content. And so I built a pretty simple three-step grading formula for reacting to raw footage. What was my immediate reaction to watching this shot or line of dialogue? Was it amazing? Was it good? Or was it average? And here's the thing, I forced myself to answer it in a maximum of one to two seconds after watching. Now you often hear an editor or a producer or a director say, what was my gut feeling when watching that? You know, that's a great question. But here's what's going on from a kind of cognitive or neurological point of view. The limbic system, an area in our brain, otherwise known as the paleomammalian cortex houses a variety of functions, and one of the big ones is our emotions. They say that the limbic system can't lie because you can always tell how a person feels about something through what's called a microexpression. They happen really, really quickly, you know, split second, when someone's responding to some kind of stimuli, someone pushing in front of us in a queue, a friend saying something outrageous, and of course watching some raw footage in an edit suite. It's the secondary rationalization that kicks in after a couple of seconds for all of us. And that's when we often start distorting how we feel about something. That limbic system response is our gut feeling and that's what we're looking for. It happens so quickly and that's why we need to really attune ourselves to what it's telling us. Is it average? Is it good? Or is it amazing? You know, in my mind, it doesn't even get pulled out of the raw footage. The big question I always have is, you know, do the good ones get auditioned as well? You know, if the shot is amazing, then it's allowed to stay on the timeline for now. You know, I'd make up stories. If the shot is amazing, then it's allowed to stay on the timeline for now, but I must warn you that this may be subject to change, and I reserve the right to ruthlessly throw you in the trash at any point between now and picture lock. you got to be amazing to stay on my timeline. I don't know. Too many hours locked in the edit suite alone, I guess. (laughs) But like anything else in this art form or any other, The more we dial into that internal state, that gut feeling, that limbic system response, the quicker, faster, stronger it becomes. We get better at grading the quality of our shots the more we practice. And therefore, our selection process and the ability to move through very high shooting ratio speeds up. For me, the psychological analysis is just as fulfilling as the creative process And I honestly believe that we can become better editors the more we look inwards at our own creativity. None of us are the same. We're all unique and individual artists. These are just some of the ways I've personally navigated through the treacherous waters of modern day film and television. We're in a subtractive art form where we're continuously trying to condense and compress while at the same time, Still trying to keep meaning, context, and emotional impact. What is that essence? Can we say this in one sentence instead of two? Can we say this in two words instead of four? Can we get the same power by using three shots instead of eight? You know, I know it's not the sexiest of creative subjects, dear friends, but I really do think that this can help to focus and streamline our creative abilities and get one step closer to that ever-elusive target of editing perfection. Yeah, we have to be cool and calm and positive and supportive in so many areas of this art form. But every now and then, we have to awaken the samurai within us for a short exhibition of ruthless subtraction. I really hope you've enjoyed this week's creative discussion, dear friends. And more than anything else, I hope it starts to pay creative dividends for you. Try it out and let me know how you get on. I'd love to hear from you. We've actually gone over time again this week. Sorry about that. You know, I really thought this subject warranted some deeper discussion and so we won't be having our usual Ask Paddy Q&A. But of course, don't let that stop you from emailing any creative questions you have to the usual address, podcast at insidetheedit.com and we'll get them on a future show. Booking is now open for this month's live bootcamp webinar over at insidetheedit.com. On Saturday, the 29th of May, we are going to be studying, dissecting, scrutinizing in enormous detail the magic of montage editing. I am going to completely demystify all of the high-end techniques and thought processes you need to know in this particular part of our art form. There is so much to cover. How to abbreviate time and action, how to tell visual stories through compression, how to choose the perfect music track for your montage, and tons of other high-end techniques not taught in film schools, training centers, or any other online courses. Book your front row seat right now for just £99 over at InsideTheEdit.com. We are growing at Inside the Edit and we're working hard to do what no other company does. Teaching the next generation of high-end editors the essential creative skills you need to know to flourish within the highly competitive filmmaking world. If you're sick of software training or the same outdated editing theory they've been regurgitating in film schools for the past 40 years, come and join pro editors from many of the world's biggest broadcasters, production companies and studios, as well as thousands of filmmakers around the world who've joined our training community. Guy from London, England is currently studying on our master's degree course.
1: As far as I can tell, this course is unlike any other that's being offered anywhere else in the world. It's a creative course with real world application. I think like a a lot of editors, I'm self-taught and I've got lots of short form experience, but what the Craft Editing MFA course has done is it's helped expand my understanding of longer form broadcast editing uh, and given me confidence to be able to tackle those kinds of projects in the future. One thing I've really enjoyed about the course is that it's given me an opportunity to meet, collaborate and network with a diverse range of fellow students from around the world. Getting their perspective and seeing their approach to to problems has been invaluable. I was probably a little bit apprehensive at first before I enrolled, what with it being the first year that this course is being run. But actually, I'm I'm really glad that I took the plunge and, and went for it. It's felt like it's been tailored for me, and I think all the other students probably feel the same way. The fact that the course is around work hours as well and all online has been absolutely brilliant. Despite the fact that I've never met my other course mates in person, there's a, I think, you know, formed a good community there, and it's been great to be a part of. I'm kind of sad that it's uh, just one year, really. I could easily do it for longer.
0: Well, that's a wrap for episode 12 of season two, dear friends. As always, a massive shout out to our good friends over at Universal Production Music who supply all of the music to every single thing we do at Inside the Edit. If you like any of these tracks and you think they'd be perfect for something you're cutting right now, as usual, go on over to the podcast page at insidetheedit.com and you'll find all the track names and links so you can license them right away for your current project. Please, dear friends, don't forget to tag us on social and sharing really is caring. If you've got anything out of this show, we'd really appreciate it if you tell your filmmaking friends about Once Upon a Timeline. And if you have a spare 30 seconds, a rate and review on Apple Podcasts is also incredibly appreciated. We want to keep this completely free resource going as long as possible. And so reviews go a long, long way to doing just that. there we go another episode in the can dear friends i hope you enjoyed this week's show join me next week for yet another episode of once upon a timeline in the meantime stay cool stay safe and stay cutting